This is The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Glad to have you with us. Lots to bring you this hour, including an examination of how elder abuse has soared during COVID-19 and what's being done to prevent its second half of the show. Mental health is the theme for the first half, though. We'll tell you about a new podcast by Canada's leading expert in positive psychology that explores the science behind mental health. And right on time, too, across the world, the COVID pandemic has caused, caused unprecedented challenges to all of us. In the U.S., a recent report found over half of a American audiences are struggling with mental health issues linked to worry and stress over coronavirus with 40% describing symptoms of anxiety or depression. That's up 11% over the prior year. Here in Canada, Mental Health Research Canada did a poll that resulted in its highest numbers ever. 22% of surveyed Canadians reported that they had been diagnosed with depression, with another 20% saying they'd received an anxiety disorder diagnosis. Self-reported feelings of anxiety and depression were also found to be at all-time highs. Yikes. Good thing number one Sunday Times bestselling author Vex King is joining us now, right on time to help with his new book, Healing is the New High, a guide to overcoming emotional turmoil and finding freedom, wherein he provides an experience of healing through the layers of self using yogic principles and unique practices. That's a tongue twister. Vex, welcome. (laughs) How are you? I'm, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, there was just something in what you just said now with the statistics and they're rising so high. But if we think about it, they're only the people that have come forward or felt safe enough to come forward and say that they've got a problem with anxiety, um, depression or that they felt suicidal. So, in fact, it's almost like a silent epidemic and it's it's probably much higher than we realize. I saw a uh, comic, a comic, a a cartoon or whatever um, of an iceberg describing mental health and and the top part, the the tip that we can see, obviously the people have come forward and and sought help, but, you know, the underside where most of it is um, uh, are people who, as you've just said, um, haven't come forward for whatever reason, haven't sought help for whatever reason. I wanted to ask you uh, what you mean when you say healing through the layers of self what does that mean yeah so (laughs) it's um basically i think we genuinely look at ourselves as just our physical body um in yogic kind of principles they say that we're multi-dimensional beings so beyond our physical body we have subtle bodies and for healing to take place we have to heal or work with each one of these bodies and they have to work together in a healthy way to actually heal yourself um so what my book does it goes through each layer of the self without attaching to what each layer is um and what it kind of means is just a brief description but just actually going straight into the work and instead of talking about healing because there's so many amazing books on healing actually doing the work to help mm. you work through these layers and actually achieve a genuine sense of fe- of healing of a feeling of healing um rather than just reading about it and thinking right okay i've got i've got all the information now what do i do my book's more kind of practical and it talks you through the steps that you can take to actually just begin your journey 
So the process that you talk about um, taking charge of your inner healing um, is done by raising vibration. And we're, I know we're vibration more than anything. As you said, everything around us is vibration. Um, People who listen to this show all the time, we talk about this, um, know why it's important to operate from a high frequency. But you tell us why this matters. I think to put it really simply is that when we're, we're, resonating on a, on a higher frequency. For example, if we're feeling thankful or we're feeling loved or we're feeling, um, feeling like we're blessed in our lives, ill hope, we start to bring in more experiences that resonate with that frequency. So if you're feeling thankful about the things that you have in your life, um, you'll receive more things to feel thankful about. And I know that can sound quite new agey but what you tend to find in life is that the true gets truer so when you really empower some kind of feeling you start to realize that actually that that feeling comes up more through your experiences and your encounters with people what i tend to find now is that a lot of people know this deep down that if you feel good things will kind of go your more your way more or less but what we find is that people try and suppress emotions that are undesirable to kind of engage in positive thinking. And really what we kind of resist will continue to to persist persist in our lives. So although we want to think positive and, you know, we want to manifest things in our life, unless we address our emotional wounds, then there won't be this organic change within us where we actually do vibrate at a higher frequency. It's, because what yeah. you find is that, yeah, there, there seems to be a kind of a battle between the un, the unconscious and the conscious mind. So on the conscious layer, you're trying to force all these positive thoughts. Ah, I'm okay and everything's okay in my life. But deep but down, yeah, deep down, you might have this underwhelming kind of feeling inside of you. It might be based on past trauma or something that's been bothering you. And that actually governs the belief. And when that governs the belief, that actually dictates your perception of your life. So although you could try and pretend you feel good, deep down, you don't actually feel good. And that's why emotion is probably the most powerful indicator of where you're at vibrationally. You say um, that this sounds new agey, but there's a lot of science behind it. The um, quantum physics tells us that vibration attracts vibration. So um, what you're putting out, you're literally drawing back into you. Um, And I I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, some of the techniques. And and maybe before I go there, I'm, I'm thinking about the listener right now and suffering um, from mental health, uh, anxiety, maybe or depression and listening to what you just said, and maybe thinking to themselves what easy for him to say, because he's already (laughs) sounds like he's already in a good place, you know, so what do you say to people who don't even buy into this at all, because they're in a in such a a sticky place that they can't even fathom um, hope, and things like that? I think so. I think it might help just by speaking a little bit about my journey. So um, my dad passed away when I was six months old. Um, my mum's business with a kind of a, a toxic family member went bankrupt. And then we were homeless for three years. Um, the main themes in my life were poverty, 
and violence um, and you know a lot of the things were traumatic so for someone to tell me maybe back in the day to think positive or to think of things you, you're thankful for it would have been extremely hard I would have right. almost rejected the idea right away because in front of me all I saw was suffering and and pain and that's all I felt um, but what I've I've done over the years is I've I've studied the most kind of iconic individuals in the world. And I thought, what separates them from me? Like, why are they, why are they living a life filled with so much love and prosperity? And I realized that ultimately, and as simple as it sounds and a cliche as it sounds, a positive mind does give you a positive life. But the the challenge is, is how do you, we get there? So in my teenage years, once I understood this, I tried to force myself to think positive. And then when I reached around the age of 21, 22, I had a massive meltdown. Um, it was probably the lowest point I've ever felt in my life. And I wanted my life to end. And I thought to myself, so all this time I've been preaching about positive thinking and positive <laughs> thinking creates a good life. And now I don't actually feel good in fact i feel the worst i've ever worst. felt even though right. i experienced homelessness and you know I, I lost the ability to live and that's when i thought and there, ha- there has to be something that needs to uh, that needs to change it has to be an organic way of raising your vibration and that's when i started my kind of self-love journey and i think the key really is to address these unconscious patterns healing is a new high talk about highs and a lot of the time we we seek out highs and they don't have to just be synthetic drugs they could be sex um work social media a lot of the time we seek out these highs to almost transcend our struggles for a moment but the problem with a lot of these type of highs is that we become reliant on them and when we have to withdraw from them Um, we kind of have or feel negative effects. We need more of it. Um, We feel hopelessness around our life. And these highs aren't really sustainable. Um, Temporary. Yeah, they're very temporary. So for me, healing is really the avenue to, to a real high because all these, all these highs that we use at the moment all we're really doing is trying to manage pain. And when we look at why we're trying to manage the pain, it's linked to a a pain pattern in the past. So there's something that might have happened that has made you reliant on a particular avenue to kind of almost Mm. self-medicate. So for anyone listening, I completely understand if you're thrown off by words like vibration, uh, manifestation, any of that stuff. But what I can promise you that is when you do the inner healing work and do it in an authentic way where you're not just repressing emotions to get rid of them, but actually addressing them and thinking, right, these emotions exist, they're valid, but what do they mean? Especially if they're comfortable. If you go through an authentic transformation process, what you'll find is that as you approach the future, You'll have more kind of trust in your ability to what hand, what what happens or what what comes your way in the future, and you'll also have more faith and curiosity. And when you have that faith and curiosity, you approach the future with much more optimism. And when your perception shaped 
like that, you tend to find, and I'm not saying that you're going to transcend every single struggle or that you're never going to meet any struggles, but you tend to find that things work out more than they, they did in the past. Um, and that's Ability why to I handle think handle them uh, improves. Yeah. It's, it's like going to the gym. Like, you know, a lot of the time we think that the weights become easier so for example, you know, you might be bench pressing or deadlifting or whatever it is you do, or even squatting. As you do it more and more, it's not that the weight's becoming easier, it's that you're becoming stronger. And in the same way, with this repetition of self-care, what you'll realize is that actually life's not getting easier, but you're becoming better equipped to handle what, what comes your way. I think it's also important to state that what we're talking about never really goes squirrely on you. It never really lets you down. And 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 the evidence, even for people who are listening, who are having a hard time buying in is, is there too, because if there's a, a pattern of negative thinking, it's, that's your life. And that's why you are feeling sort of the way you're feeling these days, uh, right? The, the, the yeah, reverse yeah. happens, converse happens. Um, your book is um, Healing is the New High, and it offers practical wisdom um, for the listener as well. I want to touch on some of the, the points um, that, I, that I've seen in the book that I think are really interesting. You've, you've got an interesting instant technique that can be used anywhere for breaking through anxiety. And, and I know so many people who um, identify with the word anxiety and anxious. What, tell us about the technique. Um, so I have actually a really quick tip to offer with anxiety. So with anxiety, what we tend to find is that we're, I, we're kind of living in the future and imagining all these scenarios of what could go wrong or what might happen um, in our heads. And what we kind of need to do, because the, the nervous system is overstimulated, is just slow it down. And we can do this just by our breathing. So there's a technique that I use all the time and it works wonders because it tricks our brain into, instead of from kind of a, uh, flight and fight, flight and fight mode. It kind of tricks it to being in a, a rest and digest mode. Okay. And the the technique is really simple. It basically asks you to to breathe in for four deep breaths, hold your breath for four seconds, and then release your breath for another eight seconds. So you're really extending the breath. And what you'll do, what you'll find suddenly is that not only is your focus on your breath rather than all the thoughts going on in your mind, but it's actually calming the nervous system down. It's very relaxing. I just did it. <laughs> yeah, it really <laughs> is. It, really, melt. <laughs> it literally, um, it can make you fall asleep to be fair, even if you do it at night sometimes. <laughs> I can't it's do that. Useful, I'm interviewing you right now. <laughs> it's such a useful technique and it's a kind of a, a quick trick to helping with anxiety. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that if you do this all the time that, you know, you're going to completely eradicate anxiety. In fact, anxiety can help us in many situations and often it shows us that we care maybe if we're approaching say a presentation and we feel slightly anxious it just means that you know we really care about what we're about to do um but what i do find especially when you're um diagnosed with with anxiety is that your mind there's a certain pattern an unconscious pattern that's linked to the past that is consistently being 
reactivated. And this is where the inner healing work really takes place because we start to look at the pattern, we start to challenge the pattern and then rewrite it over and over again. So instead Mm. of naturally falling down the path of the old pattern, we start naturally finding ourselves falling into the path of the new pattern, which is, of course, much more empowering and supports us going forward into the future. You talk about in healing is the new high, uh, intuition-based responses versus trauma-based responses and, and why it's important to know the difference. Touch on that for a minute. Yeah, so a lot of the time, you know, you hear the phrases, stay true to yourself or your intuition never lies to you. It's, you know, I always say actually myself that, you know, your intuition is your inner GPS, it always leads you to the right places. Um, and if you, if you have like an inkling, you should trust it. But the problem sometimes we find is that instead of intuition, we start to f- believe our fears and sometimes they're based on paranoia. Right. Yeah. So if someone's had or experienced trauma, they're more likely to to be in tune with their fears rather than their intuition, because a lot of the time they're operating through survival rather than freedom and expression and a connection to their true selves. I always find that intuition delivers a message in a calm tone right. even if it does it doesn't have rationality now this can be challenging for some people because sometimes you might intuitively feel like your other half is doing something that they shouldn't be doing my challenge to this idea is that intuition can tell you what you need to hear whether it's right wrong you know something you don't want to hear or something you do want to hear but it'll always come in a subtle tone, like yes, non-panicky. It's just a truth. When you're trying to persuade someone that something is true, and just think about this in our everyday lives, we always shout and scream and we become erratic. And that's what our fear does to us. It's delivering a message to us, but it's it's loud. It's making us feel uneasy. We keep thinking about it over and over again. And that's where we get mixed up between intuition and fear. So when you start, when you start to engage in the inner healing work, what you really start to do is start to connect with your intuition more rather than the trauma, which is created based on experiences and events of the past. I wish we had more time with you, but we're running out of time. Vex, uh, congratulations again on the book. It's called Healing is the New High, A Guide to Overcoming Emotional Turmoil and Finding Freedom. And it's by number one bestselling author Vex King. Uh, Good luck again. And we're going to delve into the science behind mental health next with a new podcast by Canada's leading expert in positive psychology that's just dropped and later on take you into the world of elder abuse and what's being done about it. You've got the Sean Prue Show here on SiriusXM Canada Talks, channel 167. We're glad you're here. The Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. So happy to have you here. We're exploring mental health the first half of this show. 
If you've missed our chat with number one best-selling author Vex King just now about inner healing with his technique to break through anxiety, you can hear it on demand on the SiriusXM app. And we podcast episodes of The Sean Prue Show at seanprue.com to catch them uh, there anytime you want to as well. Hey, I'm so happy to welcome back our next guest, friend of the show, Canada's leading expert in positive psychology, Louisa Jewell, to continue the conversation about mental health. She's just launched an awesome project, a podcast. I'm trying to be funny here. A podcast called, appropriately, The Awesome Project. Hey, you. Hey. Nice to see you again. So good to see you, Sean. Thanks Congratulations. for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm so happy. A labor of love, you said. You know what? It's been a labor. It, it takes a lot. Well, you must know what it takes to put out a podcast. And a village. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spent many months scripting and recording and editing. And I mean, I was working with a production company, so they do a lot of the technical stuff. But still, it was a, a lot of work, but really interesting as well. And a lot of research, too. I mean, I know you know what you're talking about, but uh, just listening to the first episode, um, you know, the the banter between you and the guest, um, you're, you're pulling quotes from famous people and from studies and blah, blah, and um, that just doesn't come out of your, your head, I don't think. Well, it's really interesting because I, I teach and I have uh, a lot of students and they're, they say, how do you know all of these researchers? You just seem to know them. But, but I think when you've been immersed in the research for as long as I have, which is, you know, over about 15 years now, right. you just get to know the, the researchers, what they study, and you're just constantly reading about new research because things are always changing and what we're learning about well-being and what affects well-being, I think is really important, but it's also important to know things that have been debunked, uh, new theories, new research. So it's, it's really important. Uh, I was saying at the top of the show that in Canada, the Mental Health Research Canada organization did a poll that had uh, a result with its highest numbers ever. 22% of surveyed Canadians reported that they had been diagnosed with depression. Another 20% saying they'd received an anxiety disorder diagnosis and self-reported feelings of both were also at all, all time highs. So your podcast, uh, The Awesome Project, is right on time. Um, you opened the podcast by sharing how you got to do what you do. Um, a very personal story. You had suffered several miscarriages and your mental health was, to say the least, a mess. So you did what someone ought to do. You sought help, but then you did what most of us would not. Yeah. So you became the help. Yeah. <laughs> well, I knew when I was in his office that he was reframing my thoughts. Uh, so I thought, you know, I really need to know what he knows so that I can take care of my own mental well-being. I can't keep running back to him every time I have an adversity. So he suggested a few books. And that's when I discovered that there was a whole scientific study of psychological well-being. And it's known as positive psychology. And that's when I went back to school. I did my master's degree at the University of Pennsylvania. I studied with the field's founder. I read thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of research. And I applied everything to myself and I never fell into a clinical depression again. And I just thought I have to teach more people about this. I founded the Canadian Positive Psychology Association, and we have been teaching this to uh, people everywhere all around the world on, on how to buffer against mental illness. And that's what the podcast really is about. 
tools, techniques. I have guests and experts, and we talk about different topics, but things you can do to help boost your well-being. I was surprised in the first episode of The Awesome Project to hear um, that more studies at one point had been done on um, mental health and negativity than there had ever been done on positive thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because people feel that it's more important, right? And you know what? If people are suffering, we want to help people. Yes, so so that's that's really important, right? That we know how to relieve people's suffering. But nobody was studying what makes us strong, what can help prevent these things. And a really interesting, there was a study that came out recently. There are a number of studies now, especially during COVID, that show that if you went into COVID, with higher levels of flourishing that in fact that protected you from things like post-traumatic stress and anxiety and depression. So we there, there's now a lot of evidence that if you're doing these things to build what we call a resilience, uh, a resilient landscape, you can actually protect yourself in the future. You use the term flourishing, which isn't just a, a word about doing well, but it's actually a term in your um, in your line of work. Tell us. So we kind of take a look at a spectrum of how you're feeling. And, right. you know, you might be feeling depressed today, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are in a clinical depression. There's a broad range of you know how people are showing up every day. And so, again, just because people are not mentally ill doesn't mean that they're also experiencing high levels of optimal well-being, which we consider mm. to be more flourishing. So the whole study of positive psychology is to move people closer to that optimal level of well-being. And again, we call that flourishing. We have lots of flourishing measures that we can give people to see where they are on the spectrum. It's called The Awesome Podcast. It's available on Audible. And my guest today is the host, uh, Louisa Jewell. I wanted to um, talk to you about the, the setup of the show is really um, well done as well. Uh, you've got an expert um, and then you've also got what I what I call the case study. I don't think that's necessarily the, the right term for it, but you've got a real life problem that you help people with. Um, and in the case of the first episode, it's a woman who's moved to Toronto from the States and she's just had a divorce. And so your, your expert takes her through and in the doing takes us through um, different ideas and tips and, and explanations and understandings of why we work the way we do. Um, it's a very good concept. Yeah. You know, at first I thought, how am I going to have a guest and an expert in 30 minutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> Talk about all these different topics uh, and techniques and tools, but it, it did work. And I think, you know, our, our guest was presenting with real world problems. And, you know, I really like the fact that we talked about divorce because we often don't talk about the impact of divorce and yet it can be so devastating mm -hmm. to people's lives. You know, there's no ritual for divorce. You know, it's like when somebody dies, we have a funeral, but when you go through a divorce, there's no ritual that helps you overcome. And in the episode, uh, we have Dr. Michelle McQuaid, who really helps take the guest through many different kinds of techniques. And as we're recording, I could see the guest's energy just lift throughout wow. the throughout the whole uh, episode because she was finding that, you know, she was resounding with the information. She was shifting as a result of some of these techniques. So it was very powerful. 
Um, Dr. Shell talked about something I wanted to share with the audience. So they've got a bit of a takeaway to positive, positivity hygiene. What, what did she mean by that? And what is it? So positivity hygiene. So, so what we know from the research is that we need to be experiencing positive emotions throughout the day, that positive emotions can actually help us recover from the physiological effects of negativity on our lives. So it, positive emotions actually have a function in our body. They help to keep us physically healthy. So positive hygiene is about knowing throughout the day how to invoke these positive emotions, how to leverage, and really just it's about having pleasant experiences. So can you throughout the day prioritize things in your day where you're actually laughing about something, you're thinking about things that bring you joy, you're interacting with somebody that brings you're you napping with your dog. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You know, I, I was living by myself during the pandemic, right? So my dog became my partner, <laughs> right? I know. And I was tired one day and I thought, I'm going to cuddle up with the dog under my desk. But, you know, it helps because it's, you know, it's, it's a warm body, first of all. <laughs> so that's <Yes>. good. <laughs> And, you know, dogs and pets can be such a source of joy. They're just uh, they're just little balls of unconditional love. And it's it's so I think anything. So so what what I really love about the episode, too, is she talks about ripples and waves. So there's the little small positive emotions like cuddling with your dog or listening to a funny video clip. But then can you book things in the future, mm. things to look forward to, bigger things that you know are going to bring your bring you higher intensity, positive emotions, like certain events. If you can book those in the future, what that happens, what happens is you have something to look forward to. And when we are positive about our future, when we're hopeful about our future, that hope can really improve our well-being. Well, and that's one of the things that people have suffered throughout COVID is no plans, no hope, no future. Um, you, travel plans were, were dinner plans were um, shuttled, shuttled or scuttered, something like that. Um, <laughs> bailed on, canceled. Yes. Um, but uh, that that was part of the um, the problem. But what I liked about uh, the this actionable wisdom um, that was shared is that it was all doable, all non time consuming, and all easy. And and uh, and I, I want to wish you great success and uh, joy with this project because it really is awesome. And uh, and I found it very easy listening, and uh, I think it's going to help a lot of people. Oh, thanks so much, Sean. I, I really do hope it helps a lot of people. That was the intention to to bring this out to a general public. So I'm grateful for uh, Audible's work on it as well. So thank yes, you. Go to Audible. You're welcome. Go to Audible and look up the awesome project. Louisa Jewell, thank you again. COVID-19 hasn't just wrecked havoc with our mental health. It's led to a shocking rise in elder abuse. And we're going to examine that and find out what's being done to prevent it. When we come back, you've got the Sean Prue Show here on SiriusXM Canada Talks, Channel 167. Glad you're here. Welcome.
Welcome back to the Sean Prue Show on Canada Talks, Sirius XM 167. Here's Sean Prue. Here I am, and I was just saying off air to our next guest that this topic is so horrible and depressing and upsetting and heartbreaking. Elder abuse and COVID-19 has made it even worse. From the early onset of the pandemic, elder abuse cases skyrocketed. In Ontario alone, where the show is based, a senior safety line reported a 200 and 50% increase in cases. Uh, the abuse itself is soared across Canada, of course, during the pandemic. Last week on June 15th, it was World Elder Abuse Awareness Day. And so I wanted to give space on today's show to increase awareness of this terrible problem and find out uh, what's being done to prevent it. I want to welcome Laura Tamblin Watts, who's the CEO of CanAge, Canada's National Senior Advocacy Association, who is here to remind us that human rights don't get old. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you much for having me. So this is being called a silent pandemic. So to play that through, we've got a pandemic within a pandemic, don't we? It's exactly so. We knew that prior to COVID-19, about one in six Canadians would be subject to elder abuse and neglect, whether it's financial or physical, emotional and psychological, sexual or other forms of exploitation. But what we saw during the course of the pandemic is that number absolutely skyrocket. And I don't think it's going to go down anytime soon. I want you to backtrack and list um, those. I was going to ask you how elder abuse is defined and you you made a list of um, different types. Can you do that one more time? Because there's a couple in there that I heard that I didn't realize. We're talking about an action or a lack of action, so abuse or neglect, that causes harm to an older person. It's very often done by a person in some type of position of trust or authority, and it can be done by a person or an institution. So, for instance, we saw a lot of concerns about systemic and institutional abuse this particular last year with regards, of course, to COVID-19. And so when we're thinking about abuse and neglect, the most common forms are emotional and psychological abuse. Some people might think of that as intimidation, bullying, name calling, discrimination kind of across the board. And it's interesting because many people who experience abuse and neglect will say that's actually the most harmful kind, even though the other harms may be objectively uh, worse. But actually, people find that that experience is incredibly harmful for them. Our second most common form of abuse and neglect is financial exploitation. That's the one that popped out. I didn't know that. Yeah, financial exploitation. So just to give you a sense of how big a deal it is, you know, billions of dollars each year are either stolen or coerced from older people. Billions. With a B. And we're looking right now at an intergenerational transfer of wealth of a trillion dollars in the next 14 years with a T. And so, you know, the issues of facing older people as they're trying to either save for their retirement or they're trying to help support family members is one of the biggest areas of exploitation we have. And then we think about other forms of abuse. It Certainly, we saw a dramatic rise in physical abuse, whether it's hitting, slapping, pushing. I mean, all the ways that you can abuse somebody physically can happen, of course, with older people as well. And many people really, they might get their head around this idea of financial exploitation or, or emotional abuse, but the idea that you're actually being physically abused sometimes is very hard for people to grasp, but of course it does. Then we're talking about other forms of abuse. So it won't surprise anyone on this show that the least commonly reported form of abuse and neglect is sexual abuse. And yet 
there is lots of sexual abuse of older people. And in particular, you know, the layers of shame and, and horror, you know, can get additionally layered upon when it has interfamily sexual abuse. So we're talking about incest, grandchildren or, or adult children, many often are often in cycles of violence in their family. And then we are thinking about other forms of rights exploitation. Certainly we saw, you know, people being locked up in long-term care without any access to visitation, without any access to the outside world, without a breath of fresh air. You know, we see other forms of, of chronic neglect um, whether it be taking grandma and grandpa and moving them into the garage and leaving them in unheated garages with only a bucket for a toilet. These are the things that are happening. And as I say, before COVID-19, one in six were subject. And we know that the increase across the country is about 250%. And those are only the calls that we know about. And right. so like other forms of abuse and neglect, of course, is underreported. We live in such an age of society, too, and I, I wonder how much of this is the measuring of value of uh, a human being based on age. Sean, I think that's the underpinning to it all. When we're thinking yeah. about forms of discrimination, the World Health Organization just released a report this past month that said that age-based discrimination was the single most common form of discrimination in the world. One in two people globally have negative views of older adults, one in two. And if we're looking in Canada, and it's not like there's any other shortage of other forms of discrimination out there, we've got all the ones that we think about. And yet we rarely address ageism. And I would suggest to you that, you know, if you need it kind of right in front of your face, go and pick up a Hallmark card. I had some milestone birthdays, you know, in my family this past month and I went to buy a card. And I suggest to you, if you replaced age with those jokes of any other form of discrimination, race, gender, sexual expression, cultural diversity, and flipped those in, how shocked would we be? But in Canada, it's a you know, millions and millions of dollar industry. It's accepted and funny. And celebrated. And celebrated. In in the worst way. In the worst way. So ageism um, coming into play here. What does that mean in terms of elder abuse when it comes time to get um, urgency and action compared to like other forms of abuse like domestic violence? You know, the numbers don't lie. And just to give you a sense, this federal government quite rightly invested about $500 million in the prevention and response to domestic violence and intimate partner violence over the course of this pandemic, about $500 million. Do you know how many dollars went into elder abuse and neglect? Zero, not a single wow. dollar. And we saw you know, investments of hundreds of millions of dollars in child and youth abuse and neglect. We saw, again, hundreds of millions of dollars going into Indigenous uh, groups to support that. And again, actually, I mean, not enough, but in some of our queer and LGBTQ plus communities, we saw also some outreach and support for those. And, and yet nothing for older people. And so it's like at a certain age, somehow you erase your identity. And that it just doesn't happen. Well, that, yeah. But there's, it it, that's ageism right there within that, that decision not to fund anything. Why is it taking so long for a grasp to happen on how significant um, this problem is? In one way, I think it's is it that just we, awareness or. Yeah, I, I think I think part of it is awareness. So so listeners to this show may be really shocked by hearing what I'm saying, but it's certainly not news at all. We have historically found it very difficult to 
get response to support older people. So we will do things like say, well, you know, we care about our elders or you should respect your elders, but actually it's incredibly hard to get any supports for older people. The irony is, you know, in the sector, we often hope that there's an abused No, we don't, of course, but that there may be an animal that's in a home with abuse because we can actually go in and rescue the animal. We can go in and actually get support for the animal, but we have no ability to get in and support the older person. So I think about how COVID exposed a lot of um, fault lines in many of the systems in our society. And and did it expose problems um, when it comes to like the well-being and care of older people? Just to give you a sense, within about one week of COVID-19, so we're going back to the middle of March here. Remember the original middle of March yeah, and the, the real lockdown. The, the first one, <laughs> we saw a skyrocketing of predatory behavior with regards to financial abuse and neglect from these are targeted frauds and scams, but again, they're grooming older people very specifically. So it's not just kind of out in the world. It's very targeted to older people. Skyrocket about a thousand percent. And we we could see those fault lines being very much focused on who we knew would be most vulnerable. So about 95% of all older people in Canada will never live in long-term care. They will live in the community, about 95%. And now all of those people were going to be socially isolated. They weren't going to be able to go outside their homes. We had an order that people over 70 would stay home. And so the predators turned immediately and went straight for that. And we knew that they were already vulnerable to those issues. Now, layer on top of that, the reports we have of family members coming home and increasing abuse and the fact that people couldn't get out and about to try to get other supports at all. Then we see the military reports. So I think we've now got our eyes open. The question is, what will we do about it now that our eyes are open? So I don't like to just present the problem on on this show. I like to present the solution. What what is going on right now in terms of changing this? to see that there's some movement. So this federal government has just made an announcement that they're going to bring together, and indeed today is one of those days, a roundtable of experts to help to try to do some problem solving and some definitions. There's been some money around data reporting because, of course, you don't count what you don't count. So we need to make sure that data is available. The major organizations across the country have come together without funding on a weekly basis to put together a national strategy. We need to get that national strategy supported and funded because right now we're all working off the corners of the corners of the corners of our desk. But I think that we can see that enough people are rising up that we are saying that changes have to happen. I only hope that that will follow through. Usually people care about seniors just before an election and then forget about them right after. It's really good work that you're doing, Laura, and I want to thank you so much. Laura Tamblin-Watts is the CEO of CanAge. Uh, Thanks for coming on the show and helping us understand a little bit more about this massive problem that's so depressing, but I'm glad to know um, that progress is being made in in fixing it. Uh, You've got more on the way. You've got the Sean Prue Show here on SiriusXM Canada Talks Channel 167. Happy weekend to you. You were wonderfully made, marvelous, amorous, glorious, victorious. You have a purpose and a reason. Welcome back to the Sean Prue Show. On Canada Talks, here's Sean Prue.
Welcome back to the Sean Prue Show here on SiriusXM Canada Talks Channel 167, where we've been talking about elder abuse and mental health issues. And if you missed the top um, part of this show, you can hear it on demand on the SiriusXM app, or we podcast after the broadcast on SeanPrue.com. I want to welcome to the show right now, taking a, a different turn now, Mr. Andy Burns, the author of The Art and Making of the Stand, is currently number four on Amazon Canada's TV reference books at Amazon US. It's on three different charts and doing very well there. Andy Burns is my colleague at SiriusXM. So this is kind of nepotism, but it's a great thing that you've done. And I wanted to celebrate you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the celebration, man. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, the uh, the book came out yesterday and um, it is about the the stand that aired on uh, in the U.S. It aired on Paramount Plus. And in Canada, it's currently streaming on um, on Amazon Prime, and it is a nine-hour adaptation of the Stephen King massive 1978 novel, The Stand, um, which I'm actually pretty familiar with because my second book, and I think you and I talked about it a couple of years came ago. Came on the show then, yeah. Yeah, uh, that book was called This Dark Chest of Wonders, 40 Years of Stephen King's The Stand. And it was um, it was about the history of that book by Stephen King because it wasn't just um, it wasn't just sort of a one and done experience for King. It was uh, you know he wrote it in seventy eight or you know leading up to its release in seventy eight. He released um, an unedited version in nineteen ninety, and um, over the years it had been adapted as an audio book. It had been adapted as a miniseries, an ABC miniseries in the mid-90s. It had been adapted um, as a Marvel comic book in the 2000s. And as I was working on this Dark Chest of Wonders, a new version of The Stand had been in the air. A lot of guys had tried to um, tried to bring it to either... Uh, the first idea was that it was going to be um, a cinematic adaptation and people had been working on it. But the guy that actually managed to sort of put all the ducks in a row as it were was a was a writer director named Josh Boone and um and I tried to talk to Josh when I was working on my previous book but he was actually deep in um working on the new mutants for um what was then Fox which and it came out last year for um for Fox and Disney and there hadn't been much progress made on the stand when my last book came out but Josh read the Star Chest of Wonders um, he was kind enough to give me a blurb for it. And, you know, just, we had some kind of email correspondence and he said, it looks like we're going to be making the stand starting in the fall of 2019. You should, uh, you should come out and visit. Wow. And, and so knowing, you know, I was obviously, you know, I, I for me, it was like, yeah, I should come out and visit. That would be great. <laughs> um, and so as it was getting closer to them starting, you know, getting ready to film, they were going to film in Vancouver. I emailed Josh and I said, Hey, you know, you said I should come out and visit. I, I'd love to take you up on your offer. And uh, we ended up having a phone call and Josh asked me to write a making of, wow. the, uh, of the new miniseries. And um, so I ended up heading out to Vancouver for a week. I uh, spent some time on set. I watched. Um, so Josh wound up directing the first episode in the final episode and um and yeah i ended up watching him do his work um managed to meet some of the actors i, I stood in a conversation uh 
with Josh and the showrunner, a, a guy named Benjamin Cavell, uh, alongside Whoopi Goldberg in her massive costume as uh, the the sort of one of the lead characters, Mother yes. Abigail. Yes. And um, yeah, and then from all that, you know, um, comes the art and making of the stand. It's published by Titan Books. It was done um, affiliated with CBS, obviously. Who uh, it, it originally was going to air on. CBS All Access, they changed their name to Paramount Plus, but they were the ones that really made it happen. And uh, yeah, the book is, I mean, I just got my author's copy. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, you see, you, know, you go, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the previous books that I've written have been, you know, really, you know, just text based. Um, but when you're doing sort of a an art or making of book, you know, there's a lot of behind the scenes images, there's a lot of mock ups of, you know, costume images. Um, and so I, I had seen, you know, obviously I, you know, I wrote the copy and then I worked with the editors at Titan on, on how the book was going to be laid out. Although really that's, that's their department in terms of, you know, the images that we can get Mm. and everything. And, uh, yeah, I, I received my first off, my first copy yesterday and it's, uh, it's really beautiful. I have to say, you know, um, it's, it's quite a thrill when you work so hard on something and then you get to hold it in your hands and it's, it's like as a baby. good as, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That doesn't, you know, that's, it's, you don't have to clean up after it, which is the best part of it. Um, I want you to, yeah, just, um, I want to backtrack for a second because you mentioned all the different forms that the stand has taken and, and Stephen King, of course, needs no introduction to pop culture. Um, but explain to people who are listening right now about um, the phenomenon that is the stand. What is it about this story that he wrote that has allowed it to uh, continue to be told in so many different ways uh, and remain popular all of these years later? You know, I, there's a lot of reasons. I think at its core, it is, it, it's sort of a, a quintessential good versus evil kind of storyline at, at its most base. And I think, you know, people are always looking for that. Um, I would say, though, that um, sadly, it remains, you know, like th- this new version was being, you know, put together right before COVID started. And it is about an apocalyptic disease that, while far more lethal than what we've had to deal with in our real lives, Mm. it is something that, you know, it remains relevant, you know, through, through all these, you know, these 40 plus years, it's a story of good and evil, but yet the possibility, you know, of, you know, of, of us getting sick from something, it also resonates and and it doesn't have to be COVID. It, It could be, you know, just, you know, you think about like catching the flu from someone or something yeah. like that. It, it's it's these um, it's these things that that just make it remain relevant. And it's also a great story, you know. And it, it is ripe for interpretation, you know. Um, um, it, it is it is ripe for um, retelling. And you know, there was the miniseries that uh, that King wrote in the '90s that was very sort of. Uh, beat for beat in many ways to his original novel. Um, not the unedited version, but the original one. You know, there's there's some changes that had to be made, you know, just for scope and length. Um, but the one in 1994-95 that came out, it, it's, it's, if you want to sort of see 
that story, that original story brought to life, that's your version. This new version of The Stand approached things from a different way. Um, it kind of starts in the middle of, of the plague and you see all these people come together. And so it's just really, you know, back to your question, it, it's just a story that, you know, has remained remained ripe for retelling um, and it's it's familiar. Before we have to wrap up, you had so much access to make this book. Uh, what's the favorite nugget, the favorite thing you saw, heard, wrote about in the book? I'll tell you this. I'll, and you know what? I'll tell you this and it's not in the book. Um, but it was, you know, one... Go buy the book if you if you love Stephen <laughs> King, you love to stand in, you love you know it, 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 because there's a lot in there, including uh, what, uh, really quickly it it also includes the script to episode nine that Stephen King wrote especially for this miniseries. Oh wow! Uh, you can't find it anywhere else. So to have my words with his is an honor. But I I will say this: the the one sort of uh, I'd never been on set before, like so many people have never been on set, and I was watching. Josh Boone direct a scene from episode nine and um, and it was a younger girl sort of Whoopi Goldberg's character, but in a, a, but sort of as a young girl and he, he just gave her some direction. She, she said a line, she said, I believe the line she was talking to James Marsden's character, Stu Redmond. And she says, hush Stu. And I remember hearing Josh as a director say to the uh, say to the young girl she's probably about nine years old very kindly he he i guess she had rolled her eyes when she was when she was speaking like just kind of like you know be quiet hush and josh said you know what don't roll your eyes because you lose your power and i thought that was a really interesting piece of direction really interesting yeah and it's something that we wouldn't necessarily hear unless you're you have the privilege to be on a set so it was it was an ex- amazing experience for me. I'm really happy with how the how the book turned out. And I and I thank you for even asking me to come on and talk about it. Of course, the art and making of The Stand is available wherever you like to buy your favorite books. Andy Burns, congratulations once again. And what's next? What's oh, your God. next book? You just turn these things oh. out. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> what's next? I think I'm going to have a nap for a couple months. <laughs> that's That's the plan. Well, I wish you great success with the book. And guess what, folks? We are out of time. The Sean Show over and out for another week. I wish you peace and love and see you next weekend. <laughs>